You may be seated. Well, when Pastor Tony and I take vacation time to spend more time in a tree stand above the ground than on the ground during a given week, we look forward to contacting one of our friends to help us out. One of those friends for about 15 years now has been John Dunning. Uh, He joined our presbytery back then as assistant pastor and then associate pastor at Oak Hills Presbyterian Church here in town. And now he serves as your campus minister in Manhattan, Kansas at uh, K-State University. And so he has been uh, commissioned by our presbytery to serve in that capacity as a campus minister. Uh, His ministry to some of our students who have graduated and gone on to college there in Manhattan, have maybe attended Manhattan Presbyterian Church as well, where Brian Huff uh, is the pastor there. Um, We have a lot of fond connections with John, and this morning we're excited that John is bringing the Word of God to us and preaching um, and expositing the Word for our ears. Thanks, John. I do love deer season because of this, because I get to be back with back among friends. It's good to see so many familiar faces this morning. Bring greetings on behalf of Manhattan Presbyterian Church, as Pastor Nathan said, your sister congregation a couple hours down the road. In particular, Pastor Brian Huff said, make sure you tell them that I miss everybody there, so it's, he sends greetings as well. If you've got a Bible nearby, which I suspect you do because there should be one in the pew in front of you, open it up to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to consider this morning Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20. I believe it's also printed for you in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along with me there, I'll be reading it in just a moment. Uh, my wife, Trisha, and I have three kids. Lucy is 14 and starting to drive. For those of you who know her, that might freak you out a little bit, but she's doing awesome. Uh, my son, Jack, is 11, and our son, Thad, is 7. I'm give or take a year on each of those dates, but I think I'm pretty close. One of the things that happens in our household on a regular basis is at the end of the day, as we're gathered around the dinner table as a family, my wife and I will be having a conversation, updating each other about our days, catching up on, you know, people we've been in touch with, things of that nature. And one of our kids invariably will say, we'll hear from the other end of the table, hey, what did you say? Who are you talking about? What was that? What happened? I missed that. It's the reality of missing, of trying to enter into a conversation halfway through. It can be frustrating for everybody involved. Whenever we open the New Testament, though, that's part of the reality. The New Testament, much of it was written in terms of letters from an individual or a couple, a small group of people to churches or to other individuals, and we're given part of this conversation that's an ongoing conversation. How much more frustrating can it be this morning when I pick a text in the middle of one of those conversations that we only have part of, and we're going to jump halfway in into chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, but that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to give you a bit of a picture of what ministry on campus is like, but also for us to consider this morning what God's Word has for us. Galatians was written, as you may or may not know, was written to a group of churches from the Apostle Paul. Paul was actually the one who first preached the gospel to these, these non, non-believing people in the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea. He, he was the one who brought the gospel there to begin with. They received the gospel, they heard the message of Jesus, they believed it, they embraced it, and it changed everything for them. Paul is now writing sometime later to say, I've heard that you're wandering away from the message that I taught you initially. What's going on is what he's asking over and over again throughout this, me- this letter. So that we're going to pick it up there. Um, if you're following along, I'll be reading chapter 4 of Galatians, um, beginning in verse 8 all the way through verse 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. 
But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but, of, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask His blessing upon the reading of His word. Father, we pray again this morning that You would send out Your light and Your truth. Father, may they guide us. May they take us to the place where You dwell, where You are, that we might see You, that we might know You, and that we, Your people, looking to You through Your Word might be changed. Holy Spirit, we trust in Your presence here this morning and ask that You would apply the truth of Your Word deeply to our hearts and everything else would fall to the ground. We bring what we have to You and ask that You would meet us where we are this morning, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. If you're familiar with the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, you know it's the ongoing story of a little boy and his imaginary friend who's really in the form of his stuffed tiger, Hobbes. Calvin is probably six or seven or eight or so, and he's always getting into trouble and mischief, of course. In one of the first, I think it's the first collection of Calvin and Hobbes comic strips, there's a strip in particular that, that comes to mind whenever I read the book of Galatians. The scene is this. The first panel, we see Calvin hammering nails into his mom's coffee table diligently with fervor. His mom in the second panel runs into the room and says, Calvin, what on earth are you doing to the coffee table? The third panel is Calvin looking up with a confused look on his face, and there's a dot above his head to to indicate that he's confused. And Calvin responds in the final panel, is this some sort of trick question or what? It's obvious what's happening, right? We parents, if you, if you have children, you've done something like that. You come into the room finding your child doing something that you, should, you would assume, common sense would say, don't do that, and yet they're doing it anyway. It's what we all, do as, we all did as kids, for sure. And the parent runs in and says, you know, ask the question, what are you doing? When it's obvious to, to both parties, well, I'm doing this, can't you tell? It's what we hear Paul saying in this text though. He's, he's writing to people whom he dearly loves. What are you doing? He, he says that in, in question form and in statement form at least four times in the passage before me, if you want to scan with, before us, if you want to scan with me. Look at verse 9. He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want, you want to be once more? And then jump ahead to verse 11. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Then down in verse 15, he says, what then has become of your blessedness? And then in verse 20, he ends by saying, I am perplexed about you. You see, Paul is writing to people who who know what is true. 
They received his message. In fact, if you scan through verses 13 to 15, we get a little bit of the context of their first, their first meeting. We don't hear about this in other parts of the scriptures. But what we, what we gather from verses 13 to 15 is that when Paul showed up, it wasn't the ideal situation. Some, he was sick or something was wrong with him. He was, may have been a, it may have been difficult to put up with. It may have been unseemly to look at. But whatever's happening in Paul's life, it didn't matter because the power of the gospel went forth into the life of the lives of the Galatian, of the Galatians, and their their lives were changed. He says, "You could have despised me. You could have rejected me. You could have paid me no attention based on what was going on in my life, and yet the gospel went forth, and their lives were changed." He's saying to them, "You know the truth." What we hear over and over again throughout this book, though, is that they're wandering away from that truth. Some teachers had entered their midst, were not fully sure where they came from, and were trying to convince them that something needed to be added to their faith in order for them to be right before God. He calls these things works of the law, most likely some strong belief that they all had to be circum- that all the men had to be circumcised like the Old Testament says, that they would have had to hold on to the food laws of the Old Testament that Jesus says were accomplished and finished in him that they would have hold, held on, as he alludes in verses 9 through 11, to days and months, to the calendar in such a way that all of this had to happen in order for them to be received and accepted by God. And over and over again, Paul says, you're chasing after something that is not the true gospel. You know the truth. What are you doing, he was asking. The Bible describes humanity, all of humanity, in some way, shape, or form in a similar situation. You see, we have a complicated, at best, relationship with the truth. If you're paying attention to cultural trends, you know over the, over dec- the last decades, for sure, that the, that the word to describe how we perceive truth is that it's all relative. You can believe what you want to believe, I will believe what I want to believe, and can't we just all get along, we say. That the truth is relative, that, that there is no absolute truth, but we can each hold on to whatever we perceive to be truth, and, and we should be okay with that. But actually, our relationship with truth is even more complicated than that. One of the fun parts about my job is that I get to hang out with people who are a lot smarter than me, many of them who are students that God has sent our way to, to engage with. I've been reading a book with a student on this very topic of the relativism in our culture, and the author, a French philosopher, actually goes so far as, as making this comment. She says at one point, one of the particularities of our time consists of the fear of truth. We hold dearly to the good, but we are suspicious of truth. Contemporary man postulates not the emptiness of truth, but the danger of truth. Today, however, we refuse even to ask ourselves the question, what is true, so that the only question that remains for us to ask is, how can we live well? Now, that may be too much for this morning. What I want you to hear in that phrase, though, is that it's not simply that we're saying there is no truth. It's that our culture is in such a place that our relationship with truth is that we're scared of it. We're suspicious of it because if there is truth, that truth exists outside of us and can therefore tell us if what we're doing is in line with it. It's something outside of us that can tell us that there is a right and that there is a wrong and we may or may not be living according to that right or that wrong. And so we reject it. It's not an intellectual argument that says there is no such thing as truth. And it says this doesn't exist. It's the, it's the moral or ethical argument that says, please don't make me listen to that because if I do, I might have to change how I'm living my life. 
That's a complicated relationship with truth, beloved. But that's where our culture is and where we, what we see on the college campus, and it's what we see probably in all of our lives. But that's what's at stake in the book of Galatians. Paul is saying over and over again, what you're believing, what you're holding on to is something other than what is true. In fact, what draws me to this is if you look, at verse, look back at verse 16, we hear Paul very, saying very directly, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, it's a fascinating thought, right? Because we think that if the truth is out there and if it really exists, it will bring us all together because we'll all see it together and we'll all, be, we'll all get along because we'll know what is true and what is false. What Paul is acknowledging, though, is that truth can actually be divisive when it speaks into our lives and it confronts who we are and how we're living in a way that's not in line with it, then we have to do something about it, and that scares us. It terrifies us. And so we look to something other than truth. I want to consider this morning looking at this passage through that, through that lens and asking us, well, what then is at stake for us? And what I'm going to do is I want to, I want to ask three basic questions that arise out of the text that actually give shape to what we're doing on the college campus to give you all an indication of that and to help to, to tell you how you can pray for us, but also for all of us to challenge our own hearts and ask these questions of our own lives. The, the first one, which we're already beginning to address, is the very simple question, what is true? Students bring that question to, to, to us all the time. They're not asking that question directly, but they come to campus to get a job, to move on to the next stage of life. And they're wondering, they're thinking, I'm going to learn some true things that I don't know yet, and when I fill my brain with that stuff, then I'll be able to take the test and get out and get a good job and get on with the rest of my life. But they're not only asking it in the classroom. Like the rest of us, they're asking questions like, what's right and what's wrong? They're asking questions like, who can I trust? What can I trust? What on earth am I supposed to believe? They find themselves in a place that is different, where the faces are not familiar, where the people are not familiar, where the activities are not familiar, and they begin to ask these questions. What is true? Now, it's, it's not going to shock you that my simple answer to that question is that the Bible is true. I hope it doesn't shock you this morning. But I want you to see how that plays out in this passage. Because Paul is writing his own, by his own words on, that are being written down for him because he knows that truth resides in God himself, the one who created all things. And what is written down later he's, in his life, he's going to write that all Scripture is God-breathed, that God is the foundation of authority, God is the foundation of truth as the creator of all things. But notice where he takes us in this passage as he articulates truth as such as it stands. Look at verse 8 with me. He says this, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. This is truth intersecting with the lives of the people that to whom he's writing, and it's truth intersecting with our lives. Because he's acknowledging that before they heard the message of Jesus, their lives were different. And then he describes them there in, in verse 8 as they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's, he's reflecting on what he knows about the world that he lives in, what is true. And what he knows is that this world was created by God, the infinite, eternal being that has no equal, that has existed eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that out of his good pleasure, he spoke all things that we can imagine and so much that we can't imagine. He spoke it all into existence. And at the height of creation, he created humanity and breathed life into us. He made us, he said, in, the, in his image. We are 
representations, finite physical representations of the infinite non-physical being who created all the world, who created everything that is. He said, you are, have a special place in my, in my created order. You are at the top of my created order, and I called you to multiply and to rule over the world that I have made under my command. That's where the story begins. That's where truth begins. It begins with God, and we enter the picture realizing that God created us. That's where Paul starts. But then we get to verse 8, and we realize something is off, right? Well, we, as the story unfolds, we know what happened. We know that man and woman, the first man and the first woman, rejected the authority of God, questioning his goodness, questioning his faithfulness, questioning the truth of his word, chose to believe a lie, and everything was fractured about their existence. Cracks began to to show up immediately as the man and the woman blamed each other and blamed God for what had just happened. And you and I feel the effects of this reality, right? Because even in the best parts of our life, in marriage, in child-rearing, and in work, even the greatest things we could accomplish, those fractures, those cracks are still a part of the system that we live in. They're still part of the world in which we live and move and have our being. Something is wrong with the world. But because we were created in the image of God, we were created to worship Him, we were created to know Him, we were created to trust in His Word and to obey Him, That's still a part of how we are, but that relationship is fractured and we've rejected God. Therefore, where we find ourselves is in this place of being made to worship, but not wanting to worship the one we should worship, and so we worship everything but him. And that's what Paul is addressing in verse 8. We're serving, we're enslaved to something that is by nature not God. We all do this. It's, It's part of what it is to be a human being on this side of those events. We were made to worship and know God. We choose not to, but the inclination is to worship and serve something is still in us, so we serve anything else except God. Not too long ago, I heard an interview with the um, famous interviewer, I guess you would call him, Larry King, if you remember who that is, and he famously stopped smoking at age 53 after his first heart attack. And in reflecting on that, in in this interview that I was listening to, he, he commented this. He says, I was addicted to tobacco from age 17 to age 53 when I had a heart attack. I know what addiction is. I would wake up in the morning and grab a cigarette before I would put on my glasses, before I would do anything else. He went on to reflect that he sees this very same pattern of addiction that was very real for him and people all around him. As he has lunch with friends who he hasn't seen for a long time, and they can't help but pull out their phones and check email and check text and check Twitter during the meal when he's wanting to connect with them. He's saying, I know what addiction is and I see it all over the place. I'm not here to harass you for that. It's a struggle in my own life. No no question, as my students can attest to. But it's this reality of that's what Paul is describing when he talks about being enslaved to something. We're stuck, we're, we're connected with something in such a way that we cannot turn away from it, no matter what else is in front of us. We can't get rid of it. We follow after it. Now, by God's grace, we know that the story doesn't end there. The, the truth does not end there. Because God promised in the midst of the fracturing, God said, I'm going to do something about this to fix what's wrong with the world. And he began to drop hints and hints and hints, and they became louder and clearer as time progressed until those hints were realized in the coming of the Lord Jesus, born as a baby, grew up to be a man, lived a perfect life, died, and rose again, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father today. And yet there's even more to come for us, and that is the hope that we have that one day he's going to make all things new again. Beloved, that is what is true 
that is the story that the Bible unfolds, not story like some made-up Aesop fable kind of story, but a story that is true because it accounts for the the world in which we live, the way the world works, and what it means for us to live in this world faithfully and honestly. This is what is true. Do you see that truth? What is true? How would you define truth for your life? How do you account for the grief you feel at the death of a loved one? How do you account for even the best parts of your life being difficult at times? Do you pretend it's not bad? Do you pretend everything is just fine? Where is that going to leave you? Where is that going to lead you? Parents and children, brothers and sisters, children and parents, you know the the challenge of those relationships. And the Bible in its faithfulness and its honesty accounts for all of that and so much more. And yet so often we try to live trusting in something less than that, something other than that. As I said, it's what I hear on campus almost every day. What can I trust? What do I know to be true? What do I do? How do I make this decision? That first question is vital. What is true? But there's a second question that follows up from that. And the second question is this. How does my life fit with that truth? If the Bible and the the, the way that it unfolds our existence is true in such a way that it's outside of me, I don't get to critique it, it critiques me, what does my life look like when I I hold it up against that truth? What do I do with that? Look again with me at the text before us, looking now in verse 9. He says this, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? It's, almost, it's interesting, it's almost as if Paul has to correct himself, though what he says initially isn't wrong, but he wants to be clear in what he's articulating. Because what he's articulating is that God moved toward his people. It's not simply that somebody had a great idea, we should know this thing that's being that created us, we should be in relationship with him, we should fix what's wrong with this world. Hey, let's get together and fix what's wrong with the world. By the way, that didn't turn out so good in the early chapters of Genesis. But what Paul is telling us in that first part of verse 9 is, God had to move toward us, that we had to be known by God. And in this context, what he's really saying is, when you, when you knew God's love for you, when God loved you, is what he's describing. It's God, it's God declaring that our sins are forgiven and that we are righteous because of Jesus, is what he's referencing here. That word known is a loaded word. The idea here is, is what Scripture speaks of as Justification. It's how we can look at truth and not be consumed and not be destroyed by that truth when our lives are made in line with that truth, not because of our accomplishment, not because of our wisdom, not because of our insight, not because of our knowledge, but by the declaration of the one who is truth, we can be made right with him. You see, justification says what you've done against God won't keep keep him away from you, and what you do for God won't get you to him. What you've done against God won't keep him away from you, and what you do for him won't get you to him. It is all, the ball is all in his court, so to speak. And he chooses to move towards his people in faithfulness and out of love through the person of Jesus applied to us by the Spirit. That's justification. That's the only way. And we try every other way, and none of it works. One of my favorite stories along these lines is that of writer Tom Baudet, who tells a story of his growing up in a household of, with his Navy veteran father who ran a pretty tight ship, if you will, so to speak. He, after, the war, after World War II, he became an engineer on the GI Bill. 
He got married, he had six kids, and he worked in the same job for the whole of his working life. And for whatever reason, Tom grew up in, as an antagonist to his father. His dad hated ketchup, and t- young Tom would always ask at the dinner table, could you please pass the ketchup? When he got to high school, Tom took the aptitude test, which told, all of them told him very clearly he should be an engineer just like his father, and so he became an English major. When he got to college, and college wasn't going so great, he decided the only thing that could make his dad more mad at him is if instead of being an English major, he dropped out altogether. And so he dropped out of college altogether, and he headed west. He was working, I believe, as a lumberjack, and one weekend was partying with some friends, and they had an electrical problem, and he climbed up the tower, climbed up the nearest pole to fix it, and he was electrocuted, and it actually caused his heart to stop. But somehow, in the providence of strange providence of God, when that happened, he fell 30 feet, and the impact on the ground must have jump-started his heart back, and he was okay, but not without severe burns over all of his body. Later, days later, Tom woke up in the hospital, and he, he saw his dad sitting in the corner of the hospital room, quietly saying nothing. And Tom assumed he knew what his dad was thinking, that his dad was thinking words of, I told you, words of condemnation and words of judgment. Eventually, his parents left, and Tom was back on his feet, and after some, some months, was okay. One day, he went to his, the mailbox in his apartment and opened up, opened up the mailbox and saw a note. And he could tell immediately from the way the writing on the envelope was written so perfectly that it was from his dad. And he opened it up. He went inside and opened it up, and he read these words. Dear Tom, I watched you in the hospital as wounded as any soldier in battle, and I watched how you handled it with such strength and such courage, and I just wanted to tell you how proud I am of you and that I love you and that I hope you take care of yourself. Beloved, that is justification. When we expect judgment, and in fact, as Scripture will tell us, we deserve judgment. We deserve to be at odds with God because we are the ones who set that table that way. And God reaches out and says, I love you. I am with you. I'm not running and hiding from you, but I am with you. Beloved, that's the answer to the question, how does my life line up with that? But, but let's be honest. Our lives are filled with with the demands to prove ourselves and make show our own worth, aren't they? It's certainly what we see on campus all the time. From the beginning of freshman year, I hear students, students talk about things like, I need to get an internship really quickly. That's what they keep telling me in classes. Even as freshmen, I've got to get an internship for next summer. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it. I've got to get good grades. I've got to get everything in on time. I've got to get everything figured out. I've got to know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life so that I can apply myself and talk to the right people here and now to get on to the next step. And there is truth in that, and we are certainly not there to take anything, any of that away from students. But what it breeds for us is a, is a culture of exhaustion. Because what it breeds is telling students that the only way that they're worth anything is if they perform correctly and appropriately. And if they somehow miss the mark, they are not enough. You know that. I know that you all know that feeling as well. Because some of you work extremely hard, and you should. God gives us work as a beautiful gift and something that he made us to do. And yet, when our identity is so wrapped up in it that that all we see is failure, if we don't cut it, we don't make it to the next level, what do we have then? It's the challenge of our existence. We bear the guilt. But if all we see is guilt, we don't see it enough. We don't see enough of the picture. Because what the apostle is saying to us over and over, what the scriptures are telling us over and over again, is that God moves towards us in our, in our inability to perform. Because no amount of money is enough, no amount of status is enough, no amount of promotions are enough, a bigger house is not enough, it will never be enough, it will never, ever, ever satisfy 
And yet God moves towards us in the midst of such despair and says, I love you. I am all that you need. There's a third question that pops up for us then. What is true? How does my life line up with that truth? The third question is this. How can I be changed according to that truth? When I realize that I fall short and that the distance is made, how can I be changed? How can I grow? In Bible terms, we call this the process of sanctification of God making us more like Jesus. It's what we see, actually, if you look at verse 19. We're in the midst of what may sound like a little bit of a strange sentence as Paul's connecting thoughts together. He says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's the process of sanctification, of you being molded and shaped and formed into the image of the Son of God. What God is about in your life, if you are a Christian, is making you more like his son. To change everything in your life, everything in your life is there in part to make you more like Jesus. Every success, every failure, every joy, every sorrow, all of it is there. Now what's fascinating about the context of Galatians and even what we see in verses 9 and 10 and then again in verses 17 is all the stuff we try to do to make this happen, right? Because we live in a world where the good stuff is instant, right? So why not, why not, why shouldn't this be instant as well? I can, I can order books today and they're going to be on my doorstep in two days, right? That's awesome. It can be, if I'm willing to pay more, they might, be able to be able, might even be able to be there faster. So we come up with schemes and plans. We, we come up with, with calendar days as he talks about. We come up with works of the law and say, if we do these things, I'm, gonna fa- I'm on the fast track to being more like Jesus. I'm being on the fast track to holiness, we might say. But look at verse 17 and notice what he uncovered, what Paul uncovers. He doesn't identify the they in this book there at the beginning of verse 17, but it's most likely a group of teachers that, have, that are distracting these people from the true gospel. He says in 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that, they may make, that you may make much of them. Paul's pulling back the curtain to say, I'll tell you what they're doing. They're offering you everything and they're delivering nothing. And it's not about you, it's about them is what they're after. You see, what Paul is uncovering is our propensity to trust in ourselves. To trust in our abilities, to trust in our, our power, to trust in our endurance, to trust in our faithfulness, to trust in us. And if you find yourself there this morning, how's that working for you? It's not going to satisfy. But the picture that he sets, sets out for us is not on a timeline that we want to establish. It's not a next week, next month, or even tomorrow kind of thing. Not long ago, I heard the story of a, of a Franciscan monk living in Italy in the 1960s who was hiking in the hills on northeast of Rome, if I have my directions correctly, which is always in question. Somewhere in Italy he was, and he came across this old, uh, some ruins. He didn't know they were ruins except that he saw an, one, an arch of the original building was still in place. And he did some investigating, and, and in the midst of the weeds and the trees and everything that had grown around in the mud and the, the animal droppings that had filled in all this space, he, he found that he discovered that it was an old chapel, an ancient chapel that had been in ruins for a number of years. So he checked with the, his, the higher-ups in his order, and he got permission and he received permission from the nearby town as the best as he could figure out how to do this because he felt he had a calling to, to reconstruct this, this building that had been demolished. And so he loaded up his car with the very, the very few belongings that he had and drove to the nearest town, which is a couple miles away, and he left his car there and loaded his, just some simple tools and not much food or clothing into a cart 
began to walk up this mountain trail that, that he couldn't drive up to this place. And what he realized was in the, in the foundation of the ruins, uh, farmers had used it, to, shepherds had used it to, um, to keep their animals in at times. So there was, there was, not to be gross, but there was literally manure sort of packed in for, for inches and inches and inches and inches over, or from over the course of time. But he had a call, and so he began to dig it out. He began to pull the weeds. He began to trim the grass and pull back the trees. And brick by brick, he began to set things back in place and remortar everything by hand. And almost 40 years later, he completed the chapel of San Leonardo. It was a years, just a few years before he died. But he gave himself to this task of building brick by brick, piece by piece, this chapel so that it could once again be the place of worship for which it was intended. Beloved, that's Christ being formed in you. It's the hand, it's the by hand work of brick by brick placing things in our lives back into place by the work of the Spirit, trusting in His presence, trusting in His work in us. So we made once again the place of worship for which we were intended. We have to be careful. It's not our effort that accomplishes it. It's not our schemes. It's not our planning. It's the work of God in us. And yet it's the work that He invites us to be a part of, to see that work in us as we hear the Word, as we receive the Word, and as He applies it to our hearts. Jesus is the standard for such work. He's the one we're being shaped into. And He's also saying, I'm there to help in this process. I'm there to do this process in you. How can I be changed by this truth? It's that. It's it's the process of sanctification. It's Christ being formed in you, making you more like Jesus. You know these three questions, don't you? Not just because you may have kids or you may have friends or you remember your own college days where you ask the big questions of life. These are the daily questions that we all ask, beloved. Think about your stock portfolio for those of you for whom that applies. Think of the truth as what the market is doing and how that's going to affect you tomorrow, right? Some of you are probably already thinking about that without me mentioning it. And we look at, we look at the stock market, this thing outside of us, and then we look at our own portfolio and say, how does this line up? What's going to happen? And then we look at the next, the next step, the, the third step is to look at our portfolio and look at the market and say, what do I need to do to change this? You look at the, the sales projections that you receive from your boss and you wonder, am I going to make the cut this year? Am I going to, the, the end of the year is coming pretty quickly. I've got some work to do. And then you're asking, what do I do next year to do this differently, to not be stuck in the same place next year? Your, your, your personal budget, the truth is this is what's coming in and this is what's going out. How does my life fit with what's true and what needs to change? You know, we're all asking these questions all the time. How much more are we asking those questions as those made in the image of God, made to know Him, but having rejected Him and looking for our way in the universe, looking for our way in this world? These are the questions that we're all asking. I want to encourage you this morning to ask yourself those questions. As you face the week ahead of you, what is true? Remind yourself of the truth of God, that you were made in the image of God, that this world is fractured because of sin, your sin and everyone else's sin is a part of it now, but there is hope. How's my life in line with the truth? The only way my life is going to be in line with the truth is if God bridges that gap and comes to me because I don't want to go to him on my own merit because that's going to mean I'm going to have to change some things. And then to begin to live with the hope that he is at work in you even now, even when you cannot see him, the hope that you have is that he is at work in you. 
And finally, I want to ask you to pray for us as we work on campus. Pray that those three questions would be, would be the markers for my family and I. Despair comes easily for some of us. Discouragement comes easily. Pray for us. And pray that these questions would be questions that the students are actually asking and that they would find the answers to in the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you shape us? Father, would you meet us where we are in the midst of the questions that we bring to you even now? Would you meet us especially in this meal that we might be strengthened for the journey ahead? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number 628. We'll stand together and sing, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare, verses 1 and 2, as the the elders come and prepare to the table.